I wrote a little poem and stuck it in the bulletin for you that are sitting here this morning, but our internet audience doesn't have this poem, so I'm going to read it this morning uh, because it is appropriate for what we're going to learn about Abraham and Sarai. It's called Dabble Dabble. Dabble Dabble, as I travel, let me have a little fun. God will understand my battle. He knows I can become unstrung. Just a little trip to Egypt. What harm can it really do? I can trust my God to fix it. All the dangers to subdue. Life's no joy without some leisure. The world is full of gaiety. What's wrong with harmless pleasure if it sets my worries free? Consequences then or now? <laughs> no time to think of these the only focus of my brow is Egypt's Nile breeze. It's the way we often think about the world. Now sometimes in scripture, God's people were actually told to go to Egypt. I found at least two occasions of that. To Jacob, Abraham's grandson, God said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt. For I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you. And I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. Joseph would have been, of course, Jacob's son. Genesis 46, verse 3 and 4. So there's one incident. Jacob was told to go with his family down to Egypt. And that God would make them a great nation there. And then you remember the Exodus, the story of the Exodus. As Israel comes out of Egypt, they are a great nation. They're estimating um, that uh, the Israelites were more than a million strong when they came out of Egypt. And that's not a little bit of people. Of Mary's husband, different Joseph, Joseph the adopted father of Jesus, an angel sent by God warned him in a dream, Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there till I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, he took the child and his mother during the night, and he left for Egypt. Matthew 2, verse 13 and 14. So here Egypt became a refuge for Jesus when uh, Herod sent out his soldiers to Bethlehem to kill all the newborn babies that were there, hoping, of course, to get the Christ child, but he missed him because God warned Joseph in the night and he fled. So these are two clear accounts in which God actually approved of his people going to Egypt with the promise that God would be with them. That said, because Egypt stands for the world in scripture, Isaiah's warning is the norm. Here it is. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitude of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. Isaiah 31, verse 1. Now look at our text. Hebrews chapter 12. Which of these two scenarios applies to Abram? That is, did he go to Egypt at the bidding of God? Or did he go to Egypt for help with a problem? 
Verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land, and Abram went down to Egypt to live there for a while because the famine was severe. The text says, Abram went down to Egypt to live there. There was no directive from God to relocate to Egypt. He's in the promised land, but he's going to go to Egypt on his own. God was silent on the matter. So it was Abraham's decision. To him, it was the logical, can I say the intelligent thing to do? I mean, he's thinking the farms of Canaan are drying up. Wheat, barley, oats are scarce commodities here. And they're getting scarcer. But farther south, there's food aplenty. That's the way he's thinking. So obviously Abraham went to Egypt to get relief from the famine and to assure himself that there would be food stuff enough for himself and for Sarah and his servants. Remember, he's asked to feed a household. He's thinking, severe circumstances call for severe solutions. So I'm leaving. I'm out of here. You remember in later history, Naomi, wife of Elimelech, along with her two sons, went to Moab, another pagan nation. Egypt, a pagan nation. Moab, a pagan nation. Why did she go there? Answer, Ruth 1, verse 1. There was a famine in the land. What land? Bethlehem, Judah. Bethlehem means house of bread. House of bread and praise. Yet in the ten years that Naomi journeyed in Moab, her husband died, her two married sons died, leaving her destitute with two widowed daughters-in-law, one of whom was Ruth. At a return to Bethlehem, because after ten years she finally did wise up and she went back to Bethlehem, here's what Naomi told the town folk. Don't call me Naomi. Naomi means pleasant in Hebrew. Don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara means bitter. Call me Mara because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Ruth 1, verse 20 and 20. I went away full, she says. Really? What about the famine? Brethren, even a famine-starved land is full when Jehovah as is your God compared to living in pagan Moab. Abraham is about to learn the same lesson in Egypt. And notice how Naomi blamed God for her misfortunes in Moab. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. It's a sad state of affairs. Indeed, when we blame God for the hardships of our own poor decisions. But sinners always look for justification for their actions to ease their conscience, even when such justification lays the blame at the feet of God. You need to watch that. Now, to his credit, our text, Abraham did not do this. He didn't blame God for going to Egypt. 
But nonetheless, his little story in Egypt began a downward compromise in his faith in God. It was not a good experience. So let's look at that. Abraham's downward trek from trust with God. Number one, he left Bethel. Bethel's where he built an altar. Bethel's where he prayed. You know what the word Bethel means? It means house of God. And he went to Egypt. You know what the word Egypt means? It means a besieged land or place of fasting. Oh, what kind of trade-off is that? God's house for a besieged house. God's house of blessing for a house of fasting. Some will say, well, should we not, I mean, access the real situation? I mean, Egypt had food. Canaan was kind of scraping by. People need to eat, don't they? Can we really fault Abraham for, for doing that? Do you know that in Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, the devil came to him personally and tempted him in this very area of sustenance? This very area. Matthew records of Jesus, after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. What an understatement. I'm hungry after 40 minutes if my, if my food isn't on the table at the appointed supper hour, you know. 40 days and 40 nights? Wow. I'm pretty sure that it was not 40 days for Abraham before he headed out for Egypt. He isn't starving at all, but Jesus was. Nothing had crossed Jesus' lips and entered his stomach for more than a month, and yes, scientists have established that such a fast is survivable. So what does a hungry man do when the tempter comes along and says, Since you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Matthew 4, verse 3. I read that, and I would say that um, none of us would have been tempted by such a statement by the evil one. Why not? Because none of us have the capacity to change stones into bread. I mean, think about this. Temptations to be real pitfalls to destruction have to match our capabilities. A deaf man cannot be tempted to purchase an extremely expensive set of Bose earphones, Bose is a very high-priced name in electronics, um, even though the, the, the earphones are out of his budget, he can't be tempted that because he can't hear. You put, put the most expensive earphones on his ears, he's still not going to be able to hear. Ah, but he might be tempted to slander a fellow employee to gain a promotion at work. See what I'm saying? You... The temptation has to match your capability. Well, Jesus was truly tempted because changing stones into bread was fully within his capacity. So how did Jesus foil the devil's evil intent? Was he hungry? The Bible says he was. Could he change stones into bread as easily as he changed water into wine? Here's Jesus' answer. It is written, 
Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew 4, verse 4. Now this is a quote from Deuteronomy in the Old Testament wherein Moses is explaining to Israel how God cared for them in their wilderness wanderings when they came out of Egypt, a desert where food was scarce. Here's what Moses writes. He, God, humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your fathers had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. And of course, faith in God's word meant that the Israelites had to get up every morning, go out and harvest the manna before it evaporated in the sun of that day. And they were only able to take or harvest what they needed for that day's food supply. If they harvested more, it rotted. So God was saying to them, you know, trust my word, trust my word, trust my word. The food will be on the ground the next morning. The food will be on the ground the next morning. The food will be on the ground the next morning. All you got to do is pick it up. But Abraham had no such dilemma. His problem was more spiritual. Yes, verse 10 says that there was a famine in the land where he was, and it was severe. But Abraham's solution was to leave Bethel and head for Egypt to leave the house of God for the besieged, fasting house of Egypt. You know, it's part of God's curse on people to withdraw himself and to withdraw his word from those who are blessed but unthankful, who are blessed but full of ingratitude. Good lesson for us at Thanksgiving time. Amos the prophet writes, The days are coming, declares the sovereign Lord, when I will send a famine through the land. Now listen how he describes it. Not a famine of food or a thirst for water. That's not what I'm talking about, God is saying. But a famine of hearing the words of the Lord. Men will stagger from sea to sea and wander from north to east. Searching, searching for the word of the Lord, but they will not find it. Amos 8, verse 11 and 12. Men need to hear God's word. They need to hear the truth in order to bring correction to their lives, to their path. But in Abraham's case, now listen, in Abraham's case, he withdrew from God. It isn't God withdrawing from him. It's him withdrawing from God. He becomes the perpetrator of his own troubles by allowing his fear of starvation, maybe, whatever. He allows that fear to overcome his faith. This was his first step in the downward track from trust in God. You mean God brought him all the way from Ur of the Chaldees, brought him to the land of the Canaanites, Promised him that land for himself. Also, he could have Abraham die from starvation and his family. Doesn't make sense, but that's the way he was thinking. Secondly, Abraham left off his worship of God. Why would Bethel be named the house of God? That's what the name means, but why was it named that? 
Verse 8. There he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. So he left Bethel to go to Egypt. Can a person worship God while he's in the world? Some people think so. Many Christians try. But if you read ahead, you will discover that there is no altar in Egypt built by Abraham. There's no calling to the Lord in prayer while he's down in Egypt. His whole life switched from honesty to deception, from being upright and above board in his dealings with people to deceiving Pharaoh, being a liar and a deceiver, which could have cost him his life and that of Sarah. And it did cost him his reputation and it blanketed, blanketed him with shame. His faith in God has been replaced by fear of men. Look at verse 11 and following. As he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. Then they will kill me, but will let you live. Say you are my sister so that I will be treated well for your sake, and my life will be spared because of you. Reading on, when Abraham came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. And when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and she was taken into his palace, and he treated Abraham well for her sake. And Abram acquired sheep and cattle, male and female donkeys, men servants, maid servants, camels. Verses 11 through 16. Nothing like being the fair-haired boy in the king's court. Pharaoh had taken a liking to Sister Sarah. Uh, that's what he knew about her, right? Sister Sarah. And Pharaoh's a man on the move to make gorgeous Sarah part of his harem. She is so beautiful that Pharaoh is willing, even anxious, to pay a king's ransom to obtain her. Abraham is showered with sheep, cattle, breedable donkeys, male and female, maidservants, menservants, camels. Chapter 13, the next chapter, look at verse 2. Upon his return from Egypt, Abraham had become very wealthy in livestock and in silver and in gold. What's this? Abraham was in the world, packing it in, accumulating stuff, stuff. And with every silver and gold coin, he was selling Sarah and his faith on the auction block of self-preservation. He was buying favor with Pharaoh, loving the world while forfeiting the worship of God. The altar of worship at Bethel, like Judah's betrayal of Jesus, had been replaced by 30 pieces of silver. Jesus has taught us, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one, Love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Matthew 6, verse 24. Oh, oh, but we try. We try. 
James warns us, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? And anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. James 4, verse 4. Abraham was walking pretty close to the thin line between allegiance to God and friendship with the world. Very close. Pharaoh is an idolater like Abraham's past associates. Nothing good can come of this. We think, um, well, you know, I'm not really a friend of the world. I'm just kind of dabbling a bit. Um, Flirting doesn't count, does it? Those who play with matches get burned, and if the fire doesn't get them, the smoke will. And they will come off smelling like a pagan rather than like a saint. This was Abraham. He left off his worship of God to go to Egypt. I wonder if we may be doing the same. Sunday is our worship day. So said by Christ himself when he arose from the dead on the first day of the week, which is Sunday. Thus this worship day was switched from Sabbath, Saturday, Jewish, to Sunday, Christian. Sunday, first day of the week. Thus sanctifying the day as our worship day. But the world makes no such acknowledgments. Right now, today, industries are open and running. Stores are open and selling. Movie theaters are open and entertaining. And on and on it goes. All these and more beckon the Christian community in competition for today. And, and when you think about it, it's only three hours of today. Sunday morning worship, Sunday school, evening study, normally. The world is voracious. You think you are just dabbling in these things, exercising a measure of Christian liberty, the world will gobble you up. What starts out as a little here, a little there, will become a raging torrent to sweep you away from God and his people. That's how it starts. Oh, it's just one Sunday, and then it's two Sundays, and then it's three Sundays, and it's not long before we're showing up one Sunday with God's people, one Sunday to worship him, one Sunday to hear God's word, if it's that. So he left the house of worship. Thirdly, Abraham relied on his wits to keep himself and Sarah safe. In case it has escaped you, the world is a dangerous place for believers and becoming more dangerous every day. Pharaoh was not a friend of the God of the Bible. Think about this. He ruled Egypt, and so what he wanted, he took. And if he saw a beautiful woman whom he prized for his harem, he would simply conscript her. That's the army's way of saying steal. 
Well, this is why he lavished such wealth on Abraham, Sarah's brother. He's paying a dowry so he can marry Sarah with Abraham's blessing. Abraham anticipated something like this, but may I, may I say, not this. Something like this might happen, but not this. Upon coming to Egypt's border, Abraham devised a plan to save his own neck, which was for Sarah to keep hidden her full identity, that she was actually married to Abram, and say instead that she was Abram's sister. Now there's a bit of an irony here because guess what? Sarah was Abraham's sister, that is, his half-sister. Genesis 20, verse 12. She is the daughter of my father. These are his words. She is the daughter of my father, though not by my mother, and she became my wife. So he married his half-sister. I can hear the devil, the father of lies, John 8, verse 44, saying to Abram, Clever move, my man. <laughs> Very clever. You have walked the fine line between truth and error brilliantly. Sarai will be protected and the Egyptians will not be the wiser. But brethren, you know half-truths are whole lies in God's evaluation. We cannot play word games with people and expect to be exonerated. Abraham likely thought that Sarai and he could live among the Egyptians unmolested, weathering out the famine, at which time they would just pack up their belongings and discreetly slip back across the border without any disturbance. And even though Sarai's stunning beauty might catch the eye of an Egyptian suitor, no one would be able to pay for Sarah's dowry. This is a lot of money. Abraham was living by his wits and his plan seemed to be working until Pharaoh stepped into the mix. Here was a person of means. Here was a person of power. Pharaoh had the wealth for a dowry, and what is more, the power to conscript beautiful Sarai without recourse for Abraham. Verse 15 says of Sarah, she was taken into his palace. Uh-oh. What's Abraham going to do now? His ploy has backfired. Sister Sarai has drawn the attention of the king of Egypt. The king wants her. The king has taken her to the palace. The king is planning to marry her and make her a part of his family. How terrible. What's Abraham to do? Let me ask you, what can he do? Think about this. By his wits, he has already done enough to seal Sarah's fate and his own. Brethren, it's no different than Israel's ploy in later years when they contracted with Pharaoh because he had so many horses and chariots. And an enemy was coming their way and they decided, well, you know, we can always go to Egypt for help. 
And that's what we read earlier in our meditation reading. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, who rely on horses, who trust in the multitudes of their chariots and in the great strength of their horsemen. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or seek help from the Lord. The text goes on to say, But the Egyptians are men, not God. Their horses are flesh, not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, he who helps will stumble. And he who is helped, you guys that are relying on Egypt, he who is helped will fall. Both will perish together. Isaiah 31, verses 1 through 3. Living by faith in God and living by your own wits do not mix. What a mess. I mean, what a mess Abraham has made for himself. Just by this little, one little decision. Hey, hey Sarah, they got food down there in Egypt and we're a little hungry up here. Let's trek south, cross the border. and Oh, oh and by the way, when we get down there, just don't make a big thing about you being my wife. Tell them, you know, tell them you're my sister. They don't have to know that you're my half-sister and that you really are my wife. This is just a little thing you can do for me. Otherwise, they'll kill me to get you, so just play along. But what a mess. This is, this is all a mess. And he did it to himself. That brings us then to God's providential intervention. Thank God. We're talking about Thanksgiving here. Thank God for his providential intervention. What's providence mean? Providential originates from the Latin providentia, means divine interposition. Providence, when capitalized with a capital P, stands for God, especially when conceived as um, being omnisciently directing the universe and the affairs of humankind with his wise benevolence. Let me put it to you simply. Providence is God stepping in to help, to rescue, to direct events in such a way as to result in his will being accomplished through, here's the key word, indirect means. Through indirect that's providence. By the way, our Constitution, we studied this Sunday night a few weeks back. Pro the word providence is found in our Constitution in many places where the founders of our country recognize the providence of God informing the country and its rules and its regulations and bringing together a people for his glory. So simply put, providence is God interposing himself, coming into a situation to help and through indirect means. Now we see this in operation in our text with Abraham's sinful predicament. His ploy of using his wits to protect Sarah and preserve his wife has failed. <laughs> He's lost his wife. Where is she? Pharaoh had her removed to the women's quarters of his palace. Pharaoh plans to marry her. But she's already married, though Pharaoh has no knowledge of this. What can Abraham do? He can do nothing. <laughs> nothing. He dug the hole, but he cannot free himself 
nor Sarah from the pit. He's overwhelmed. He's overpowered. He is a drowning man swamped by the incompetence of his cleverness. He forsook God and God is... Oh no, God has not forsaken him. Something about our God. Verse 17 of our text. But the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abraham's wife, Sarai. It's cause and effect. So, Pharaoh summoned Abram. What have you done to me, he said. Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her to be my wife? Now then, here's your wife. Take her. Go. And then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men. And they sent him on his way with his wife and everything that he had. Verses 17 through 20. Here are three providential interventions that God did. Number one, the Lord inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh and his household because of Abraham's wife, Sarai. You know, good health is the result of, um, it's the result of God's good gifts to us. It has little to do with strong constitution, your genetic pool, appropriate diet, sufficient exercise, which the world always is promoting. Has a little to do with that. It's everything to do with God. Forbes magazine reported in April, and I'm reading now, at the 34th London Marathon, marathon runners, you know, they're out there exercising before the race, they eat healthy, all of that kind of stuff. At the 34th London Marathon were 36,000 runners participating on that Sunday. The post-race death of a 42-year-old man was the event's second death in three years. In North Carolina, I'm still reading, in North Carolina, two men died, age 31, age 35, after collapsing at or near the end of a 13.1-mile half marathon of the capital city's inaugural rock and roll marathon. A combined 12,500 runners participated in the Raleigh event. The author is David Kroll, writing in Forbes magazine in April 15th of this year. You know, like stories like this abound, including those of some granny who lived to age 103 and smoked three packs of cigarettes every day of her adult life. So those who are fastidious about their health regimen and those who are utterly careless about such things, both are under the scrutiny of God of whom David declares, all the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. Psalm 139, verse 16. God's the giver of life. God is the one who takes life. No one dies before his or her time, as people say. Good health, bad health. God ordains it all to remind us that we are not masters of our own destiny. Pharaoh's messing with God here, not just with Sarah's wife. So Sarah, the wife of Abraham. So God sends diseases upon Pharaoh's household. And that's point two. Pharaoh was awakened. This is the second intervention of God. He was awakened to Abraham and Sarah's deception. So Pharaoh summoned Abraham. What have you done to me? He said, why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister? So that I took her to be my wife. 
Notice that Pharaoh has made the connection between the diseases his household was experiencing and Sarai being Abram's wife. I think he probably went and asked her. I don't know. I can't prove it. It's not in the text. But somehow, you know, why am I having all this trouble? Hmm, hmm. What, what's happened new of late? Well, new of late, I got this beautiful woman that belong, that's the sister of that guy out there. I think he went and talked to her, got the truth out of her. And notice, too, that he had the moral integrity to realize that he should not use his kingly authority to marry another man's wife. Not all pagans are devoid of moral integrity. But that doesn't make them God-fearing men. That's the law of God written in their heart, Romans 2, that says, Thou shalt not commit adultery. And they know that instinctively by God's grace. Third providential intervention. This is really amazing. Pharaoh was willing to expel Abraham and Sarah without reprisals. Think about it. Verse 19, 20. Now then, here's your wife. Take her. Go. Then Pharaoh gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent him on his way with his wife, notice, and everything he had. What's that? Pharaoh did not demand that the dowry be repaid, that Abraham go without Sarah or without the wealth that he had acquired in Egypt. Just go. Just take your wife Take the things you have and go. Remember how embarrassing this was for Pharaoh as well as for Abraham. He had been duped by a rancher, from, a farmer from Canaan. Lesser men would have enacted a disciplinary judgment to teach Abraham a lesson and to save face. But God was watching over Abraham even in his sin, even with his Lack of faith. That's our God. That brings us then to the great lesson of this text. You and I do not know the extent of God's providential interventions in our lives, but we should be thankful for them. Just as the Bible asserts, no eye has seen, nor ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 9. So that's talking about the future. Just as no one knows exactly what's coming in the future, so God can say to us, as he does, it was I who taught Ephraim. Ephraim is another name for God, for Israel. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking him by the arms but they did not realize that it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. I lifted the yoke from their neck. I bent down. I fed them. Hosea 11, verse 3 and 4. So that's what? That's the present or the past. So he's saying, we don't know what the future is, that what God's working on for us, but... We do and can acknowledge what has, he's done in the past and what he has done and does, continues to do for us in the present. 
Two Wednesdays ago, Dee and I ran off the road, an icy road in our subdivision, down all across the neighbor's culvert into the ditch. And with a quick jerk of the steering wheel, we were back up on the road in an instant. No damage to the car, no damage to us. You all remember we called around and canceled prayer meeting that night. Providentially, God was watching over us. What about your accidents? What about your near-death experiences? Providentially, God is there. I just saw in the news this morning a pilot was on the news who crashed his private plane and survived. Well, guess what? He did it before. He went into a river, crashed his plane. So twice he's gone through plane crashes, which we would normally think would kill a person, and he's come out unscathed. What's that? It's God's providential intervention. The psalmist says, Love the Lord, all his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but the proud he pays back in full. Psalm 31, 23. Or again, my comfort in my suffering is this. Your promise preserves my life. Psalm 119, verse 15. And then the most famous of all the psalms. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm 23, verse 4. We cannot account for all of the providential interventions of God in our lives. They are secret, they are untraceable, or they're clouded in mystery, but they are there. And so David reminds us, Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits who forgives all of your sins and heals all of your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit and crowns you with love and compassion, who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all the oppressed. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. Wow, what a blessing. Or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his child, So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows how we are formed, and he remembers that we are dust. Isn't that great about God? You don't get what you deserve if you're a believer. You don't get what you deserve. You don't get what your sins deserve. I don't. So, When you catch yourself dabbling in Egypt, living by your wits rather than by faith, indulging the pleasures of sin, forsaking the worship of God, the message of Abram and Sarah to us is this. Get out and get back. Get out and get back. 
Not later, now. Not after you have denied God and brought disrepute on his name, but immediately. Not when, like a dog, you have to limp back across the border with your ears drooped and your tail tucked between your legs. No, but before the evil days come and you suffer great loss. Get out, get back. The world's golden carrot that it dangles in front of you hangs out over the abyss. The abyss. And as people strive for the golden carrot, they fall into the abyss, ever to be lost for eternity. The world's not your friend. You don't go dabbling in the world without consequences. Now chapter 13 tells us that Abraham came back where did he come back to? We'll study it next week. He came back to Bethel. He came back to the place, to the house of God. He came back to his altar. He came back to prayer. He got right with God. We need to do the same. Father, we thank you for your word today. Abraham is a lesson to us in what not to do. In fear, he became a liar. In fear, he left the promised land to go to Egypt. And there he got himself into a whole hornet's nest of trouble. He ended up denying his faith. He ended up showing the pagans that his faith in God was not worth much. Became a liar and deceiver with regard to Pharaoh compromised his wife. He deserted his God. Lord, help us not to do these things. We're so thankful for your providential intervention. He got himself in such a pickle he couldn't get himself out of it. And had you not stepped in and done marvelous things, that would have been the end of Abraham and Sarah. But you had promised that through Abraham and Sarah, a nation would come. How could that be if he were destroyed in this lapse of faith? Thank you for your providential interventions in our life. When we get ourselves into a, when we dig a pit and we can't get out, thank you for those times when you step in and rescue us in spite of us. Pray for anyone here today that's struggling with their sin. May they cast it upon the Lord Jesus Christ, the great Savior of sinners. They might be rescued from the abyss to come and from our present day evils as we trust you. Thank you for your grace to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.